Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The Pragmatic Investor. Today I was joined by Zach Bristow, a fellow ESSEC contributor with a background in the medical industry. He focuses on healthcare equities and we had a great conversation today about the future of healthcare, how technology and artificial intelligence are affecting healthcare and what kind of trends he sees as the most beneficial and profitable for healthcare moving forward. Following this, we also had a bit of a chat about the macro outlook and we dove deep into a couple of technical indicators that Zach uses to wrap up. Zach also told us about his pick for the Pragmatic Investor Portfolio. Stay tuned to find out what it is. And as always, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Welcome once again. I am joined today by fellow essay contributor, Zach Bristow. Zach, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. Great to be here. So we're talking before we started, and you have a very interesting background in the medical sector. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about uh, that and then how you then got into finance. Yeah, thanks. Um, Lots to unpack there. Look, I started my career as a physiotherapist, actually, um, in around 10, 15 years ago now, um, and had large aspirations of uh, wanting to be involved with a sports team and, um, you know, treating professional athletes and, and that, that sort of thing. Uh, I, I guess with all uh, professions, you learn pretty early on that the delusions of grandeur uh, don't hold for very long. And, yeah, I guess the, the, uh, the marketplace taught me pretty quickly post-graduation that in order to succeed, you had to move into business um, and, and that's what I did pretty soon after I graduated my physiotherapy um, degree. Within the first uh, one or two years post-grad, I was, I was working uh, for myself just as a sole proprietor and then moved into a quite a niche uh, sub-segment of uh, rehabilitation, which is on the neurological side, which is involved with strokes um, and other neurological conditions, things like multiple sclerosis, um, motor neuron disease, ALS, etc. Um, and that was quite interesting and, and quite a pleasure. And through that, the next step, uh, the next challenge arose. Uh, and in Australia, there's a pretty, being Australian, I'm, I'm sure you can hear the accent, but down in <laughs> Australia, there's a pretty interesting uh, workers' compensation scheme. Uh, whereby the medical and, and allied healthcare industry is quite integrated in with um, the workers' ins- uh, compensation and insurance scheme. And my practice m- moved more towards the uh, corporate side of physiotherapy in specialising to reduce insurance premiums for companies uh, in ho- what you could call high-risk uh, sectors, things like manufacturing, um, especially repetitive jobs in food manufacturing and food processing. You can think like meatworks and, and abattoirs and that sort of thing. And my speciality or the speciality of the firm was to set up practices on site and treat uh, patients uh, on site mm-hmm. to prevent the um, them going on to the workers' compensation scheme and therefore saving the companies involved uh, big dollars. 
And that was quite an eventful ride. I ran that business for around five or six years, um, growing uh, to around 250 to 300,000 in pre-tax revenue um, per site. Um, I had a number of sites going. Um, and eventually uh, the industry, as it always does, undergo underwent some pretty drastic changes with respect to um, the, the way insurance worked and the way that um, allied health and medical providers could invoice the system and what have you. And so there came a time where my fiancé and I, uh, who is Maltese, um, decided to, uh, I guess, move on from that business and, and sell up, and we moved ourselves over to Malta, and that's when I immediately immersed myself into the world of finance. And that had been a product of dealing with corporates and executives within that world and there was I guess just a, a an underlying interest anyway um into the whole corporate and, and world of finance and just like early on in the physiotherapy uh journey I actually undertook a master's degree in finance and finished that within one or two years an accelerated program which is good these days you can you know, log on the internet and everything's offered online and it's very, very handy. So that was what sort of kick-started my, my career into the world and, and unraveling the, uh, the world of all things finance and investing. And then luckily being in Malta, which is, has, we were discussing earlier, quite a strong financial services industry, um, mm -hmm. it was quite easy to obtain some work here and started off at a small boutique uh, in equity research, which was good fun, mainly on US listed equities. Uh, and from there, uh, just sort of toing and froing between roles. And then COVID came, which threw a, a, a spanner in the works. And I'd been sort of practicing uh, equity research, if you if you were, for, for a couple of years. But the firm I was at wound up. And then uh, this led me into my current role, which is with the private trust here in Malta. Uh, mm -hmm. running money for a number of clients located both in Australia and in Malta. Uh, and as a role, uh, my roles are fundamentally involved with our research, but also part of the investing team and part of the trust. We run a specialist fund that is concentrated in healthcare, the whole continuum of healthcare. So we're mandated mm -hmm. to invest in companies from um, healthcare services, or, which can be quite profitable stale you know sort of boring companies all the way down to the you know speculative end of biotech um and mm -hmm. uh biopharma and that sort of thing and that's sort of the the nuts and the bolts of it yeah i've sort of made a, a natural transition i guess um from working in healthcare and 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 medicine so it were um over into the uh world of uh healthcare investing and uh that's where i find myself today Right. Well, very interesting background. Uh, very interesting accent as well. I always yeah. always enjoy hearing a, a good Australian accent. Would it be safe to assume then, since you are Australian, that um, you're interested in football, or as our American friend would call it, soccer? Yeah. Yes and no. Uh, in in uh, Australia, we call football. We call rugby league and or rugby oh. union. So if you would ask me if I'm interested uh, in football uh, in a rugby league and rugby union sense, I would say yes. 
Soccer, I, I wouldn't say I follow as closely, but I am an Arsenal fan, so I'm not sure if that means much to you or not. Uh, uh, but that it, does, it does get actually me my interesting. Yeah. <laughs> my family's originally from London and, and uh, Arsenal is my, my grandfather's team, so Magnificent. That's uh we've got some common ground here at least. <laughs> uh, I was picturing that, you know, when you started off as a physio, you, you probably imagine yourself, you know, kind of on the sidelines of one of the big teams, yeah. maybe. That's right. That's actually the reason you move into it really and you can get sold that idea. I guess going back even before um the sort of post-school life, I was very heavily involved with sport and, and quite high-level sport throughout my schooling life, but injuries plagued that. And so I was in and out of physios and injury mm-hmm. rehab uh, facilities all the time, so I was quite familiar. And so, therefore, you sort of do picture yourself being involved on the sporting side. Interestingly enough, a large subset of physiotherapy is not in the, uh, I guess you could say, private practice where we're working with athletes and, and working with teams, that most of it's actually working in hospitals and in clinical mm-hmm. settings. And that was one of the interesting things to, to know. And I guess it's the same with any new degree or, or course or, or journey that you undertake. You sort of don't know what you know, uh, what you don't know. And early on, it was pretty apparent that, you know, hospital life uh, is would be a requisite if you were to be a successful physio and so I did a lot of work in hospitals and that's mm-hmm. a real eye-opener working in hospitals no matter what um, profession or, or background you come from if you happen to work in a hospital it's a real eye-opener because you get to see the, the struggles people go through and also what the body does go through there's conditions you might not have even heard of um, mm-hmm. on a daily basis so I mean, that was, that was great and, and really integral into growing into a career such as uh, finance, which is by and large objective and data-based. Um, mm-hmm. Working in clinic, clinical settings is, is a fantastic transition because you, you practice a lot of what they call clinical reasoning, which is just deductive reasoning. If it's not this, it's this. If it's not this, it's this mm-hmm. and so on. Um, and I think that's been a real benefit, actually. And, you know, people ask me, would, if you had your time over again, would you just study finance or vice versa? And I'd say no, because you've got valuable skills from, from both mm-hmm. and, and both cross over. So, yeah, I mean, but back to your question on football, yeah, no, just the rugby league and the rugby union, mate, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. As you say, I think it's it's always better when, you know, you can have sp- um, particular skill sets like yours in this case, finance obviously gives you a keener insight into these types of stocks. Now, the medical sector, of course, a very interesting sector, yeah. a lot of different types of companies. Uh, before we talk more about that, I'd love to know a little bit more about what you'd call your own investment style, um, yeah. more of a Warren Buffett. What exactly are you looking at when it comes to companies and how do you go about uh, maybe selecting these companies and screening them? Yeah, great question. Really, if you take a step back and look at it from above, a a company is really a conduit between its investors and the assets and the equity that that underpin the corporation. Mm -hmm. And so if you believe that, you would also believe that the capital that's in the business, in other words, all of the operating capital, the machines, the, the factories, for example, and the intangible capital, is also your own capital. And so you would therefore expect your company to be very efficiently investing 
that capital in order to grow and add value over time. Mm-hmm. And so the what that boils down to is the a firm's the firm's ability to generate or produce incremental earnings or growth in earnings from the capital it invests each year, let's say. And so what I'm looking at specifically as a, as a, as a banner is the return on invested capital. That's what interests me the most because I want to see how my firm, my company is handling or managing capital. And in reality, it, capital or, or money should be more valuable in my company's hands than my own because there's an opportunity cost. And, mm-hmm. and you mentioned Buffett. Uh, before and Buffett has a famous test. It's called the one dollar test, and I'm not sure if you if you're aware of the one dollar test. It's uh, something, is, yeah, very point. interesting, and and you get an insight into the way Buffett uh, thinks, which he was well before his time, and a lot of uh, successful investors have, have followed his footsteps. But the one dollar test is where you benchmark uh, the value of one dollar over time. Let's say five years. Buffett himself uses five years, but you can use any period. And you can use rolling periods too. Uh, at a, you want to benchmark the value of $1 in the company's hands versus the value of $1 at a specific hurdle rate. Now, you could say that the long-term uh, market average, including all asset classes, is around 10 to 12% in a bullish scenario. It could be mm-hmm. 8 to 10%. It could be 10 to 12%. Let's say it's 10 to 12%, and let's, let's go at the upper end of that 12%. And so you... Realistically, if the company is to pass the $1 test, it should be investing $1 or the notional amount it is investing each quarter, each year, and generating Mm -hmm. a return higher than that hurdle rate, that 12%. And in that sense, the company would be generating what Buffett and others like to call economic earnings Mm -hmm. versus accounting earnings. You could say economic profits versus accounting profits. And for investors, economic earnings are more valuable. They're more of they're more important pieces of information than the accounting profits that are presented at the end of the year, for example, because it shows how the company has created or not created value. For example, if a company decides to invest in launching a new factory to increase capacity then over the next few years, it would want to be generating additional profits on top of what it was generating at time zero Mm -hmm. in order for that investment to be successful. The rate of return that those profits constitute should be above your specified hurdle rate, in this instance, 12%. So if Mm -hmm. the company invests uh, a factor at $100 and then the next year, generates an additional 15 million in post-tax earnings, that's a 15% return on the investment Mm -hmm. and therefore above the 12% hurdle rate. And I would say that company has created value Mm -hmm. for its shareholders, for its owners. And there's some maths involved with that. It comes down to the amount of cash that the company can throw off whilst Mm -hmm. maintaining its growth rate. But the empirical evidence also shows that the market and investors in general value high returns on capital very highly. And there's some research to show um, if you want to check out research from Michael Mabusen, who really is one of the leading authorities on this, um, of CounterPoint Global, 
uh, the head of consilient research at Counterpoint Global. It's a nice uh, mm-hmm. title to have. <laughs> you'll you'll get a lot of information on this because he's one of the leading uh, him and Dan Dan Callahan are one of two of the leading authorities on this. Um, but basically, you can get more information about how a firm is creating value for its shareholders when you look at how the firm is investing its own money to grow operations down the line. And that's basically my investment philosophy. And uh, working in the health and medical um, investment space is very conducive to that. The mm-hmm. business economics um, are very much um, con- like a conduit to that in the sense that most of the uh, revenues, say, in medical technology, medical instruments, surgical instruments, this sort of thing, the uh, growth strategy is to create new products mm-hmm. and launch them over time. Or if not launching new products, innovating around the core product. Like mm-hmm. a good example of that a few years back was a biomed. The ticker was ABMD. They got bought out for $16 billion by Johnson & Johnson. Uh, and they had a heart pump, which uh, was involved in surgery and after surgery and maintaining you know, blood flow and stuff like that. And all they did was continue to innovate around that 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 core concept. Mm-hmm. And if you think of, you know, in terms of a, a moat, as, as Buffett again says, um, okay, yeah, there is like competitive advantage, but one one type of a moat is the speed of innovation, right? Mm-hmm. And if a company is a leading innovator in, in one segment, which this company was in heart pumps, then of course, by the time a competitor has decided to enter the space, a biomed was always three, four steps ahead. So that was a great company to own. It got bought out for sixteen billion by um, Johnson and Johnson, and that's really the 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 crux of the the business economics at one end of the spectrum. But then you've got the other end of the spectrum, which is the healthcare services and providers and all of that sort of thing. So you've got like um, me- medical uh, facilities, uh, hospitals, also aged care facilities, residential living, mm-hmm. also. Um, Aged age care, residential living also falls under this umbrella for some mm-hmm. reason. Um, and in that realm, the the re- revenue model is less on products, obviously, and more service space. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you've got different metrics to look at. You're looking at things like on a per case basis, um, you know, revenue per day, revenue per room, revenue per case, um, and then building your models down from there. Um, and realistically, that's the two ends of the spectrum. You've got products um, in terms of medical devices, et cetera, et cetera, drugs, um, pharmaceuticals, mm-hmm. and then on the other end, you've got services. And really, the two markets feed into each other, and they have lots of adjacent markets that work with each other. For example, mm-hmm. um, the labor- those that make the laboratory co- equipment and then those that conduct the clinical trials like the biotech companies and the biopharma companies work closely together. So... Yeah, there's lots of interesting mm-hmm. economics within the space, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I can I can see where you're coming from in terms of how the medical mm-hmm. segment relies on that kind of constant innovation, constant investment, yeah. and how it's it's so important to maybe focus on, like you say, that kind of capital allocation and making sure that a company can, can give those returns above That's market right. even, if possible. That's now, right. I'm very interested to know because you are uh, Australian and based in Malta, which is in Europe, uh, yeah. Focus then more on uh, European equities and maybe more international equities. There is a, a small focus. The major focus, no, is on US listed equities. That's mm-hmm. the biggest market, the most liquid market, and arguably has been over the past decade 
obviously where most of the opportunities have been. We're seeing the tide start to swing now um, towards the European equities and e- even the FTSE as well. You know, both mm-hmm. <laughs> the FTSE and the, uh, the 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 European indices have rallied this year. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, but the thing is, now we're starting to see the rotation back into the US indices. Like the Nasdaq, by all accounts, is bullish. And if mm-hmm. you're looking at charts like objective charts charts and point and figure charts of the uh, NASDAQ, then it's bullish in my opinion because, and, and we can discuss that if you like, the actual technical factors, but realistically, there's a major tech rally going on as well with this AI hype, which is the next phase after Web3 and the uh, metaverse, and that's driving a strong rally, and that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether or not it's sustainable or not is the next question. But um, yeah, I think that's really the next the next avenue worth worth uh, sort of investing in. And you look at Nvidia the other day when it posted earnings, the results there. I think that's a signal of what's to come. If mm-hmm. yeah, the more the more and more things um, evolve, um, and some of the talks that we've had internally, um, you looking at AI integration into healthcare and medical technology. It's absolutely phenomenal. And that ranges quite uh, extensively, actually. On the one end, you've got medical technology, um, which is being guided by AI in the sense of surgical robotics um, mm-hmm. and uh, other uh, things like that. The, the big area in surgery right now is in uh, spinal robotics. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing a n- number of companies, for example, one's Globus Medical, um, GMED, G-M-E-D. Is a company that we own, and it uh, is focused heavily in spinal robotics, and that's a heavily evolving sector. And now, with the use of AI, uh, is even more attractive. And then you've also got the integration of AI into uh, the more medical front. And what I mean by that is in uh, sectors such as cardiology, mm-hmm. uh, whereby, and a good example is a couple of years ago, there's a good company right now, iRhythm. IRTC, um, don't own at the moment. Uh, it is a very clever company that uses AI and machine learning to record uh, heart, let's just say heart rhythms and various um, the the uh, ECG readings that you see on the on the heart scans, and can immediately interpret those results within ninety nine percent confidence to an actual cardiologist. And the benefit is that the results, when there's a reading um, of atrial fibrillation or some sort of cardiac um, condition, it immediately gets uploaded to the cloud and then Mm -hmm. gets sent off to the treating surgeon. So the surgeons love it because they're not having to see patient after patient after patient. They can see a broad scope of uh, patients at one time from like a hub-and-spoke sort of model Mm -hmm. um, whereby they're in the centre and they're seeing heaps of patients and they're also getting uh, really high-quality data in real time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're also seeing that in diabetes too with insulin pumps and things like diabetes management. And then on the pharmacology side, you're seeing AI involved with uh, drug simulations. And that's a really exciting uh, uh, frontier. I wouldn't actually have any recommendations at that space just yet. I think it's early. Um, there are some exciting um, developments, but drug simulations could very well be an emerging market within the pharmacology space because it reduces the time money and, I guess, resources involved in getting drugs from A to B. 
and one mm-hmm. of the big issues in, in drug development, just, and you can compare drug development, for example, in biotech and biopharma pharma companies, mm-hmm. you can compare it to the mining sector whereby mining companies go and exploration companies, forgive me, uh, head out, wildcat companies head out into the wilderness, let's say, exploring for resources, um, strike gold, bonanza, as they say, um, and then offload those rights onto another um, larger company that will go and dig up the gold. It's similar in, in biotech and, and drug discovery and development. There's mm-hmm. a set of players that spend, um, raise capital and uh, invest in R&D to uncover new drugs, um, new formulations, medical breakthroughs in complex disease segments. And then once they're found, because the speciality necessarily isn't in, in developing the drugs, it's just discovering them, then they offload the IP and the um, assets, uh, the biological assets off to other players that mm-hmm. do the heavy lifting. And so you see a lot of collaborations within healthcare, medical and biotech industries, particularly in the biotech industry, within that model I sort of just described, you get a lot of companies that are just focused on uncovering new formulations and then the deal structure is typically to link up with larger um, either drug manufacturers or pharmaceutical companies. Um, And that's actually quite a symbiotic relationship. Number one, the large companies love it because they don't have to take on any of the pipeline risk, which means that they're not having to to take capital away from other growth areas and put it into R&D which can be quite speculative, and it's also treated as an operating expense under gap accounting. And the small companies love it because they don't, I mean, they're not specialists in getting the drug to market, so they can let the, the larger player do the heavy lifting, and typically it's under a royalty or a licensing structure, and they can be quite attractive too in the space because you've got a tail, with, with the royalties especially, you've got a tail of asset returns that length, that, that extends well into the future, uh, you know, if royalties are at, say, like two, I've seen royalties as high as 12% of sales. So, you know, it can be quite lucrative royalties. In the and there's funds that specialize on that too. Mm-hmm. Well, well, thanks for touching on that, Zach, because obviously given the time that we're, that we're at now and when we're recording this, we couldn't have this podcast without talking about AI and all the implications. Um, obviously, course, I think, I think health- it's natural here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, healthcare is a segment that I think lends itself or w- already is lending itself quite well to AI when it comes to data. Like you mentioned, you already mentioned a few different segments. I'm curious because I've always thought about um, something like surgery and I've always thought that eventually, I mean, you ju- you'll just have robots doing surgery, right? Yeah. Isn't that the way it's going gonna, it's gonna to end up? I believe so. That is a, a definitely the trend that's happening now. There's a number of reasons for that. It's multifaceted. You've got, first of all, the surgeon level. So, like someone performing brain surgery, these can take 8, 12, 16 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and any human entrusted <coughs> in that uh, large responsibility uh, will, I mean, that's, that's a feat, let alone to repeat that on an ongoing mm-hmm. basis. R- robots don't face that issue, obviously. Um, we've got enough technology now, as we talked before, uh, in the spinal robotics, I mean, when you're dealing with orthopedics like bones and joints and stuff like that, a lot of the benefit in the AI, let's call it, um, is getting the angles and the entry and exit points right, which, so it happens, actually makes a big difference in terms of patient outcomes. 
And if you're looking at the in, the variance between um, surgeons in, in how they might perform perform the same procedure, I mean, there's a large there's a large variance. So the robotics solve that. Um, and if you're looking more like complex surgery, like brain surgery and that sort of thing, there's an element of precision. And I'm not sure if you've seen the videos um, around, but there are incredible videos of surgeon train surgeons doing training, and they're doing it uh, via um, like you and I from from a, from another location, controlling a robot, and they're able to peel a banana, cut the banana peel, you know, all these really intricate, dexterous type things, and you know that level of precision has a lot of merit in something like brain surgery or, or, or complex, you know, cardiac surgery or something like that because any small deviation or, you know, I guess uh, fumble, you could call it from the surgeon, has implications but the, the robots don't do that. And then obviously uh, I think there's an element of uh, what you could call medical, um, the medico-legal aspect of it. That's going to be the really interesting talk to have because obviously doctors are upheld to a set of standards. They take the Hippocratic Oath, which is do no harm. Um, mm-hmm. And if, if something goes wrong, then there's malpractice and, and yeah. that sort of thing. But the, the, the interesting debate that's just sort of unraveling now is, well, where do you go with that when it pertains to AI and it turn, to machinery and, and robots? So I don't think that's been accurately defined yet, and that will be a very interesting segment to, to mm-hmm. watch. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. AI does, uh, it does pose some very interesting um, philosophical questions to an extent. Yeah. We'll, we'll link that to another podcast, try and, yeah. try and focus <laughs> on, the, on the data here. I will say... Yeah. Um, I was listening to a podcast the other day where they were talking <clears throat> about quantum computing, which I believe will probably be, once we're done with AI, that could be the next fad. And they were talking a bit about uh, quantum computing in the realm of uh, of drug discoveries and kind of the, mm-hmm. the idea that you were discussing before, because I, I believe the idea about quantum computers is they can basically almost um, take atoms or to an extent um, – kind of dive into what the, the physical world and run, like you said, simulations on drugs. And Interesting, that, yeah. That would definitely be um, something quite revolutionary. I'm curious, um, within the, se- um, the healthcare segment, um, what kind of areas are you most uh, think are most high growth? Because I've been following, for example, this guy called, I don't know if you're familiar, he's become quite famous, Brian Johnson. Um. Who- there's, there's a few Brian Johnsons that come to mind. That's all. So he was the CEO to... of um, pretty big company, I believe. Um, anyway, and he's doing this thing. He calls it blueprint. And basically he's just trying to defy death, right? He's trying to stay young wow. and just very, obviously very data driven. So, and you can follow it and it's, it's very interesting. And that's a uh, segment that I think is definitely quite interesting. That kind of longevity segment, especially as the population starts aging. How do you view uh, healthcare going forward, and what are those uh, areas of interest you think in the next maybe twenty, thirty, even fifty years? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and it like the AI question. You could really have a whole podcast on that because mm-hmm. the last decade, in particular, there's been tremendous advancements in complex disease segments. Um, Think things like oncology, um, cancer, uh, neurological diseases, um, other really 
diseases that are and conditions that are really hard to treat and and we maybe we don't know how they're caused or we don't know um of course what even how to manage them so they can be quite debilitating i would say the largest advancement over the last decade has been in that domain and on that point i think that will be the trend continuing going forward the um, the breakthroughs in complex disease segments Mm-hmm. And if you take a step back and you think about it logically, it, it, it makes a lot of sense too. Number one is a lot of the fundamental knowledge and studies have been completed in medicine and, and health. We know mm-hmm. a lot about the heart. We know a lot about the body's various systems. A lot of investment has been uh, dedicated in providing products for us on the marketplace mm-hmm. Um, to maintain our, our health at a, at a base level. In other words, f- free, free of disease, okay? Um, that doesn't include uh, mental health. That doesn't include emotional health, et cetera, et cetera. And so there still exists a whole entire realm of, uh, let's say, very complex disease segments. And I've listed a number of them. There's, there's thousands and, and ones you wouldn't it's, – it's really a case of Murphy's Law. If, if something can go wrong with the body, it probably will and probably has, and there's, a, there's probably a condition for it. Mm-hmm. And so lately we're seeing a lot of breakthroughs in these kind of conditions and that's been attracting a lot of investment. Think think a very peculiar condition like narcolepsy, which uh, is a, a very interesting sleep disorder, which yes, is I've been accused of having that at times. Yes, I think I think it's it gets thrown around a lot. Uh, but it's quite a difficult condition to uh, to treat, and also the current standard of care involves a dual, a, a, a twice nightly uh, regime that supposedly wades off the narcolepsy during the day. The problem being is that you're asking someone with a sleep disorder to wake up twice during the night mm-hmm. and take uh, some medication, which ultimately impacts their sleep during the next day anyway, and so. There's a big debate going on right now in that space between two companies, Jazz Pharmaceuticals, and I'm just getting them up on my uh, screen now as well. And I've actually written a few pieces on this, um, uh, on on the two competing names involved in this. One of them is Avidel, and mm-hmm. um, it's something that you, I, I, it's an interesting story that I think you guys should check out. It has an interesting drug called Lumeris, and that's the uh, disruptive drug I was just mentioning in, in narcolepsy, whereby Sorry, it's what's, it, what's one, it called again? Could you? It's called Lumeris. I'll spell it L U M R Y Z. And so there's been a really interesting patent dispute between Avidel ticker AVDL and Jazz Pharmaceuticals, the ticker's just Jazz, uh, in the patents surrounding this, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> this, this segment. And Jazz has the dual, uh, the, the, the twice daily regime and, and Avidel has the once daily. And Jazz has unsuccessfully tried to defend its patent in court and therefore Avidel should be right to start selling its product on the market. Um, and it undoubtedly should, in my opinion, attract some serious investment if all goes well and all is successful. Um, mm-hmm. It's up it's up about 98% this year to date, just for context. Um, and so that's what I'm getting at is this complex disease segments and there's not numerous examples. I would look for, if you wanted a very uh, obvious and common area to find plenty of examples of this happening, it's in the oncology space and cancer space. 
Um, mm -hmm. Bristol Myers, BMY, is one of the leading um, authorities, you could say, on this and has chucked its uh, suite of um, clinical drugs out to the market, basically said, here you go to all of the uh, young biotech and uh, biopharma companies and said, here you go, try and come up with some um, solutions here to really complex cancer segments. And they include the, the hematological cancers, um, solid tumours, um, and there's been really strong advancements in things like melanoma, skin cancer, and mm -hmm. also a really an interesting condition. You can call it NASH, N-A-S-H, which is mm -hmm. non-alcoholic um, liver disease, basically. And okay. these were previously, these examples amongst the many more, were previously thought to be untreatable or um, quite life-changing or detrimental conditions, whereas now... We've seen some serious breakthroughs in that. Mm -hmm. And the companies uncovering these um, drugs are especially attractive because when you're looking at biotech investing and in anything in the, uh, I guess, development and discovery end of healthcare, which includes biotech, medical technology, um, biopharma, all these sort of things, um, they have to go through various trials they typically have to go through three phases phase one phase two phase three there's some variations on that but if you were to just generalize it companies have to go through these these three phases mm -hmm. phase one being just just a, a basic um prove that this 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 will work um and and do what it says on the tin phase two being more a safety and efficacy study with a small populace and phase three typically a very large um, study that that uh, is the one before it goes to market. That's really important to know if you're interested in investing in in biotech and healthcare because at each point along these studies, these are critical inflection points in the company's market valuation. And so, if the company is to come out with some very positive trial data, just like in the mining industry, if a company finds gold, mm -hmm. you could liken it. It's a very good analogy because the market heavily rewards these uh, companies on the speculative end. So mm -hmm. if, you, if you're interested in speculating on clinical stage assets, which mm -hmm. is quite a profitable uh, strategy if done right, then, yeah, the different phases of the trials are key inflection points to watch out for. Mm -hmm. And obviously that works on the downside too if the company doesn't do well in its studies and et cetera, it will, there'll be a large sell-off. And it's quite predictable, actually. So that is the risk-rewards play that you're looking at in biotech. You don't have earnings and, and a lot of fundamental data to go by because these companies that are early stage and clinical stage companies aren't selling anything and don't really mm -hmm. have a strong balance sheet. But the market does reward them very heavily and, and very liquid as well. Uh, mm -hmm. And I would say that's it. So, so really complex diseases and in terms of the aging population, that lends itself to the obvious uh, uh, candidates. Looking at players that are involved in depression, Sage mm -hmm. Therapeutics is a really good example right now. I mean, this, this deal with Biogen has been going on for a few years. They have their compound um, that's involved with major depressive disorder and also postpartum depression. And these are enormous markets, as we can imagine, unfortunately. They are, um, but that's the way it works in healthcare. Um, and if you look at a company like Sage, which is an example of that small 
sort of biotech company, and then Biogen, which is the larger player. They've linked up to form a deal whereby Sage came mm. up with the drug compound and Biogen is now going to do the heavy lifting on the market. And mm-hmm. that would really be, yeah, characteristic of the aging population. And anything to do with the aging population is a no is a no brainer. Um, hospitals um, are spending big, big capital spending in hospitals at the moment to accommodate for this. Obviously, all the depressive disorders. Um, and then, uh, realistically, you've got the complex disease segments, like I said. So there's a, there's a good. A dovetail of growth going forward in healthcare, and all of these range from very high growth, frothy markets to quite, mm-hmm. uh, you know, stable long long term growth markets that uh, are there for the long term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting because, like you said before, you have both ends of the spectrum: the more speculative plays, the stable yeah. ones, and then it's interesting you talk about the big money that being made, perhaps in in those kind of, I guess you'd say, selling those expensive what you might say very expensive treatments to yeah but that's more limited right because not a lot of people have those conditions whereas i i often think about the other side of the spectrum which might be a bit more related to old age which is well what if you can get a drug that you can sell to you know cheaper but to maybe billions of people well yeah that's that's a really good uh point and to that point you, you look to the companies that are working in uh segments such as osteoarthritis mm-hmm. uh such as, uh, you know, conditions associated with aging, which can be pain, uh, osteoarthritis is another one, uh, mobility. The, these, are, um, th- these are companies that uh, you would be looking at if you wanted to play the aging um, population, in my view. And the good thing about that is that market is increasing um, ad infinitum. The population is getting older and older. Uh, people are living longer and longer. And by at some stage into the future, um, in the next 20 to 30 years, estimates suggest that up to 50% of the population will be 50 years or over. So that's mm-hmm. a very interesting demographic and, and very conducive for, for long-term positioning in, in some, um, I guess, like what you said, some, some healthcare plays that address the masses. And if you wanted exposure to... Um, a really exciting potential industry. It's the obesity drug um, mm-hmm. epidemic, you could say. Listen, right. I couldn't give you any. Yeah, I couldn't give you any specific names right mm-hmm. now on that because that's an area I'm looking into heavily right now. But you can liken that potential to when we first saw uh, blood pressure medications come onto the market. So. Um, Obviously, high blood pressure uh, affects, I don't know, however many people in, in the world. It's a very high percentage and it increases, the incidence increases as you age. Uh, and obviously, in the 80s and early 90s, when these first these tablets first came out, I mean, look at the market now, especially in the mm-hmm. Western populace, uh, an enormous uh, strata of people are prescribed blood pressure medications. So you, there's been talks to suggest that this... Uh, obesity drug, um, let's say, has potential, all, all of the suite of uh, obesity drugs, and there's a number of candidates and they all have differing uh, hypotheses and different routes and stuff like that, but that could potentially be likened to the blood pressure medication mm-hmm. um, s- scenario that happened in the late 80s and early 90s, yeah. And that would be something that I'd be really looking at that would obviously affect up to 50 to 60% of the population. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, it's very interesting. 
Now, I know that I'm getting off the topic a little bit in, in terms of investment, but I was wondering what your thoughts are, because you, you just brought up something like, uh, you know, the obesity epidemic. Um, also, we've talked a little bit about depression, and I often look at, um, you know, modern medicine, and there's, there's this sense that some people have that I think, you know, even though we have access to all these medicines, somehow it seems like we're unhealthier today than we were maybe mm. 50 years ago. Uh, there's yeah. some issue there. Um, yeah. with the type of medicine that that we're giving out and you know maybe yeah. to that extent um, medicine that is more focused on, on curing rather than preventing and that's kind right. of some distorted in, distorted incentives to an extent because maybe what's good for the you know for the medical complex or for people investing in this uh, segment is not necessarily so good for for the population in general right yeah I would tend to agree with that and uh Pharmacology and drug manufacturing is a classic example of that. Mm -hmm. And again, that really does open a huge can of worms because on the one end, yeah, it's in a company's interest, a pharmaceutical company's interests for people to stay unwell from a market perspective, from an addressable market perspective. But mm -hmm. in reality, the, the uh, emphasis should be uh, to resolve the condition. And as you said, prevention is always better than cure. Um, it, it's it's a challenging one because you, you open up an ethical debate there as well because do we prolong research into finding a prevention and let's say quote unquote letting people let people suffer more for longer mm -hmm. or do we go about just treating the condition that seems to be the most I guess you could say less complex route uh, and manage the symptoms and try and treat the condition so people have quality of life. And really, that's the kind of debates that go on at the regulatory level mm -hmm. um, in terms of drug discovery and stuff like that. And there are lots of ethical uh, considerations. And if you ever are interested in psychology or any evolutionary psychology, you can look at some of the experiments that have been conducted back in the, uh, say, uh, early, anywhere up to the 1950s from the 1900s and 1950s, mm -hmm. um, and give those types of experiments we couldn't perform today for ethical reasons, but... I mean, they've given us good groundwork on, on the regulatory front, on what we can and, and can't do. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, yeah, it's an interesting debate. Like, yeah, on the one hand, you've got companies who are trying to be profitable, and on the other hand, you've got people who want to get better. I will say, though, that, that there is a lot of merit in companies who do come up with cures. You can think of a company like Vertex, Vertex Pharma, that came up with... Mm -hmm. The Trikafta uh, drug, which is for CF, cystic fibrosis, they were uh, CF pure play for, for for some time. VRTX is the ticker. Mm -hmm. um, they they are a classic example of a company that I was mentioning earlier has come through with a very a breakthrough in a complex disease segment of cystic fibrosis, and um, yeah, now people who have that condition, whereas otherwise life expectancy and um, quality of life was was quite low, mm -hmm. it almost absolves absolves them of 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 those um those those burdens. And so mm -hmm. that obviously, if you, if you were to just do a bit of research on Vertex, you'd see how the market rewarded such a company like that. And so I, I do believe that even amidst the capitalistic nature of the, the markets, there is still a merit in in doing the right thing and mm -hmm. and actually doing good for the world yeah yeah absolutely it's it's an interesting point i've i've heard a lot of conspiracies around 
you know, for example, saying that the, the cure for cancer is already out there. They're just, yeah. they're just stopping it. I don't know how much I believe that because people say, well, there's yeah. no incentive in curing cancer. And I said, I think there is. I mean, I think yeah. you could still make yeah, quite when, a bit of money if you were the one to, to do it. <laughs> well, well, you would. You'd, you'd actually, that's the thing. If, if there was, you would have the holy grail of, uh, mm-hmm. of, in, of, of any, actually, in, in reality, if you were to, to not have the cure, well, cancer, it's like having the Coke recipe, really. It, it's really that valuable. And, mm-hmm. it, it, and, it, and it's interesting because that opens up an interesting topic because when you, you – you, we're talking now about intangible assets, right, which are extremely common within the healthcare, the whole healthcare continuum. In fact, the healthcare in, as, a, as a sector uh, is the most concentrated in, uh, in intangible assets, I think I've, I've read some data up to 48% or more, up to 40 to 60% of, of the healthcare industry's, uh, sorry, sector's balance sheet is weighted towards intangible assets. Mm-hmm. And some, some might, you know, roll their eyes at that and say, well, well, what about the tangible book value? What about, you know, net asset value and that sort of thing? And, that, and that's true. Um, number one, it's not all goodwill, these intangible assets. It's not all made through, it's actually the discoveries they make and, and the, um, you know, the breakthroughs that, that, that pit these, these companies come up with. It's no different to software companies that, that put protection right. and patent protection on their own thing. And there's lots of benefits of in, intangibles. And precisely one of the main differentiators and insulators of, uh, investing in companies that are in, in healthcare that are investing in R&D. If you're thinking about putting some money towards, uh, the more research and discovery end of healthcare, you're going to find that the uh, formation of intangible assets, if a company can form an intangible asset from its R&D, in other words, come up with some sort of drug or some sort of new medical device, uh, the market rewards these kind of innovations very heavily. First of all, let's backtrack a bit. There's been a huge transition over the past 30, 40 years in corporate America and, and, and globally away from tangible assets on recorded on the balance sheet over onto intangible assets when recorded on the balance sheet. And there's a number of reasons for that. Software is one, um, you know, other, other forms of capitalized expenditures that no, aren't necessarily tangible in nature are another. The point is, is, is nowadays there's a huge weighting towards intangible assets. Um, and especially in healthcare. And there's a number of benefits to that. There's five or six benefits that come to my mind immediately. The number one is that the marginal cost of sharing intangible assets is very low. So you think about a drug, for example, that's been discovered, um, and the, the IP, the, the, um, intangible asset is actually the formulation. It's not the factory that produced it. It's not the actual construction itself. It's the mm-hmm. formulation. And that can be taken by, hundreds of thousands of people at one time versus a machine, for example, that can only be operated by one person at one time. And so there's mm-hmm. immense access benefits, like the usage um, benefit of intangible assets versus a, a tangible comparable. Um, the intangible will win every day because more people have access to the, to the asset at one time. So therefore, there's scalability um, you know, you can benefit from the economies of scale because they're so cheap to reproduce because the IP itself is the asset. You don't need to continually reproduce the IP. You're just making the drug, for example, the, the physical mm-hmm. specimen, or if it's a medical device, it's the actual tool, the instrument. 
Um, but um, and and therefore they're more scalable, and and the profitability that can be generated in terms of a return on investment can be uh, in the multiples higher than in more tangible counterparts. The downside to that, obviously, is that they can be knocked off more easily. Um, these type of things, but that that's that's where your patent protection comes in so valuable, right. and that that opens up a very ethical debate because we were talking a little earlier about the ethics involved with this. On the one hand, you've got a company, and imagine you're an investor in a drug discovery company, a biotech company. If they they've come up with a very uh, unique and and breakthrough formulation, you would want your company to protect that in order to maximise the profitability and the sales, etc., um, and the economic moat around that that product. However, in doing that, you're preventing a lot of your competitors in researching the same drug and maybe making better formulations mm-hmm. or I guess improving on the, the the base compound, and that therein lies the debate. Well, who who really should have the final say? Because at the end of the day, what really matters is the patients, um, the, which is the market, um, right. who more or less need these medications in order to to as a going concern. So that's that's a really interesting topic of debate: patents, um, intellectual property around drug discovery, mm-hmm. uh, medical instruments, and that sort of thing. And um, however you feel about that um, would probably dictate how you invest in this space as well. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a conundrum. It's very interesting because if you look at a uh, healthcare in America, it's actually you know one of the most expensive. People complain, right? Oh, healthcare in America is so expensive, and yeah. you don't get public healthcare like maybe in Europe or probably Australia. But then you look at you know actually the. Um, the healthcare itself, and you know, America is one of the, if not the best place for, you know, certain treatments. People go there to to That's get right. all those. So, so there is, like you say, those those two those two sides to it. But then, in terms of the patents, the way I understand it is, for example, there's a lot of money wasted in terms of you know, um, pharmaceutical companies can basically renew their patents. That's by right. kind of finding new uh, uses for them, right? So there's, yeah, that's right. which doesn't seem very efficient. Now they kind of run these trials to say, oh no, look, now we can do this with it, so we get that's it for right. another ten years. Yeah, and they're clever because the patent the thinking around it is is to protect all of the future innovations that are around the core offering. As I was probably mentioning a little bit earlier, to come up with some you know groundbreaking discovery, you want to protect that, but you also want to protect everything that you're going to build around it, and also the, the future advancements and, and um, you know, improvements you would make to it. Uh, and, and that really does, it creates, it, it really creates an interesting scale. And, and on the one hand, you've got some of the most profitable companies um, and, and both in terms of on, on an operations level, but also on an invest from an investor's perspective, lie within the healthcare space. But it, at the same time, you know, it's, it's really a integral part of our society, just like raw materials and commodities is. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I guess the the overlap is quite similar. These are integral functions. These are, you know, very. De- that's why they're good to invest in in the mm-hmm. first place because very defensive. Maybe not commodities are more cyclical, but healthcare is a very defensive sector mm. um, and not necessarily sensitive to the business cycle. And that's because it's actually right. yeah, it's it's, in, it's interwoven in the fabric of of society. So yeah, I mean, it, it depends on how you feel, really. I mean. It does open lots of interesting debates with clients and that sort of thing, especially now we're moving towards a more ESG type mm. framework, and you know, in general, in, in corporate world. 
And so, yeah, people want to know where they're, well, how these drugs are produced, how this instrument was produced, how this, um, you know, what's going on at these facilities. You know, you've you got cases uh, of aged care facilities where treatment isn't up to standard. That's a big issue. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's lots to think about. And, and I will say definitely the talk with clients over the past few years has definitely been geared towards much heavily towards um, an ESG front in understanding, yeah, the ethics side of things. And mm -hmm. I, I would, I would go as far to say that people would avoid, um, like we have a bit of discretion, but I, it's ultimately ends up with the clients. And I would go as far to say that people would avoid investing in companies that aren't adhering to a solid ESG framework in, in, uh, healthcare and medical for sure. And there's mm -hmm. like, I mean, you can, we can get right into it, you know, about, whole COVID saga and that sort of thing. That's a prime example. Um, but then, you know, I guess going forward, companies are going to have to do a lot in order to really prove that they're doing things properly in, in this space, yeah. Absolutely. Now, we've been waxing lyrical about uh, healthcare for you know the better part of an hour here. Before we get back to that, because I will want to have your stock pick, uh, I wanted to change pace a little bit and talk a little bit about the market in general which we briefly touched on, we were talking about the SPX, and you did mention, I believe, something about the chart looking bullish. Uh, you mentioned the figure uh, figure and point chart or something like that. Yeah, look, I'm not sure um, who whom of your audience might uh, look at a lot of charts or round their research or their studies out with technical or, or, or market-generated data. Um, but if, if you want objective um market generated data technical data the best kind of charts to use are cloud charts which are mm -hmm. also known as ichimoku charts ichimoku. okay yeah 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 uh and the other in my these in my opinion and this is backed by our professionals that i talk with and are in the field especially mm -hmm. if you're interested in like commodities is the point and figure charts now point and figure charts i'm not sure if you have seen them uh, or if your readers may definitely um, do some research, there's some great books I can recommend on both um, who, who kind of like wrote the textbook on both these authors did. But these are two measures in which give you uh, the opportunity to view things objectively, whereas mm -hmm. a lot of technical analysis, for example, that looks at the market um, in terms of just a you know pure data perspective, it's very subjective and it relies a lot on um, interpretation of results. So objectivity is has a lot of merit when you're talking, you know, technical wise. And mm -hmm. the best two chart, the best two studies that I would recommend to use for that to achieve that to understand a where we are in the trend, and b what to expect in terms of price targets and um, and uh, you know market direction is is point and figure point and figure studies. And I can I, I'm not sure if I'm not sure if you um. Can you just give us a quick overview of what a point and figure is? Yeah, I'm just I'm just here. Maybe I can I can show you one. Uh yeah, sure. Let me just uh, back cancel. Yeah. When I did the QuickTime thing, yeah, I did a installed it a number of times. I'm just gonna turn my camera around. Do you think that would sure. work? Yeah, I'll show you. Do you share the screen? Can you share the screen? I'm on my. That's the. That was one of the downsides. All right, because you're on the. On the, on the all right, yeah, sure. Yeah. Just, you can just turn the. Yeah, I'm just going to do that now. 
can turn the camera around. So hit right in front of me, I have a point and figure chart. I'm not sure how clear that is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's okay. the basic for formation. I'll maximize that so we can zoom in. You can see that we've got a number of X's and O's. Right. X's indicating up movements, O's mm -hmm. indicating down movements. The best way I can describe uh, point and figure charts and their merit is if we take a uh, standard line chart, you can see the day-to-day -day machinations of the market. Right. And if you were, say, here in the trend, you would want to know roughly where or what this was going to look like in advance. Now, you can make some really good inferences by using the point and figure charts because what the point and figure charts do is they sort of remove the volatility within the trend mm -hmm. and just look what direction the price or whatever variable you use is heading in, whether it's heading up or down, basically. And you might think these are some modern technique. These are actually some of the oldest charts um, in the finance profession. You can see the X's and the O's. Mm -hmm. These were used by traders back in the early, the turn of the, the, the 1900s, as they watched the tape, they would put an X or an O as to whether the stock they were watching was going up or down. And let's right. say it would move up by two or three points and they would put an X on each corresponding movement and then if it moved back down, they would plot the O's, etc. The main benefit, especially if you have correct software, and I would recommend using UpData for these, mm -hmm. is that there's mathematical formulations that will generate price targets for you. And whilst there's not a great deal of empirical data, there is empirical data, there's just not a great deal of empirical data, they match up very well with these. First of all, the price targets are very uh, accurate in terms of their direction and specificity, and they match up very well with these, which are called cloud charts or Ichimoku charts. Mm -hmm. Now, professional um, investors will use and do use point and figure charts and Ichimoku charts as trend indicators and also an indi a uh, identifier for price targets. And the simple rule here is any break of the price below the cloud would be considered bearish mm -hmm. and above the cloud is bullish. Now, right. it's, that's a very generalist overview. These cloud, these, the lines that make the cloud are mathematical calculations that are from the price history. And there's also two additional lines and what they call a lagging line here. Because the lagging line is the real, the real uh, I guess you could say, um, sweet thing about the Ichimoku charts in that it gives you confirmation of the trend. So right now I'm looking at this chart. You can see it's bounced off the support of the, the, the base of the cloud over the past three or four days and broken higher. If the stock was to come back down into the cloud, I might be worried and say, huh, what do I do here? Am I bearish or am I bullish? And that's when you look to the lagging line. The lagging line is a number of periods back of mm -hmm. the price action that's already happened. And this is your uh, confirmation. If the lagging line breaks into this territory below the cloud, then you would be bearish and the opposite mm -hmm. if uh, you were bullish. And that tells me that's not the NASDAQ, but that tells me that the, the trend is going. I'm going to put the NASDAQ on there. Right, yeah, exactly. Show us, show us yep. the... Now, both of these are what you might call momentum indicators. Would that be right? Um, yes, um, in a way. The Ichimoku cloud does rely on... It's basically kind of a moving averages, right? The, uh, 
Yes, except um, except that my tickers aren't coming up here for some reason. Yep, let's do here in this deck 100. So we have the daily cloud of the NASDAQ, the ETF, mm -hmm. and you can see it is above the cloud on a, quite a considerable amount. And most importantly, this lagging line is a large distance from the cloud. Now, if we were mm -hmm. to scroll back a little bit in time and make some inferences here just to prove the point here. Now, this is what we call congestion. There's not much going on here. It's trading within range. If you're a trader, you might have some strategies you might use to try and catch the volatility there. Mm -hmm. But you can see several points we've crossed the cloud here, as, as so, to, so to speak. Number one, this point here, which was in September 2022, and we were bearish in September. And then we had the, 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 the double bottom in October leading into uh, January, right? And so mm -hmm. the real, the, the, the benefit of using a chart like this is that in this stage here, when you're in the congestion and there's not much going on, you don't have good signals, as soon as there's a break above the cloud, yeah, into what you could call bullish territory, you've got confirmation of the trend, and that would be confirmed when the lagging line broke right. above the cloud. And it conforms nicely. We've got some support found here, which then bounced away. And um, again, to me, that looks bullish. I will put it on here too, which is the point and figure mm -hmm. chart. And we've got so if I just go back to here, I'm showing 14th of March. My, my cursor, which I'm not sure if you can see, mm -hmm. is showing 14th of March here. Okay. And on the 14th of, 14th of March, we had a price target up to 145, which has been met at the moment. Okay. We're at one, yeah. And we've got also we've got price targets of 149. So that could be the next thing. Now, it's important not to look at these <clears throat> just on face value. You've got to look at different time frames too. So mm -hmm. the daily the daily chart looks out to the next few weeks, right? Whereas the weekly chart looks out to the next few months, mm -hmm. and and so on. And the, the hourly chart looks to the next few days. Now this is hasn't given off the weekly chart hasn't given off a new price target just yet. The, the rules. And you can set your rules however you want, but the rules haven't shut that off yet. But you can see we're close. And we've broken above the trend. And if I go back to the, the cloud chart and put that on a weekly, you can see we've just broken above the cloud on the weekly. And that's, that's kind of like what I'm talking about of that bullish confirmation. And you mm -hmm. would use these studies as supplemental data to your fundamental findings. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you're finding that, you know, the market's turning, turning up and you've got some good evidence to say, hmm, yeah, you know, it might go long here on the long side, you'd need something to confirm where you're at in order for your positioning, in order for your entry and, and also for your exit as well. So these, the, that, the lagging line, which I just have in blue in my settings here, breaking above the cloud is a, is a strong bullish indicator and mm -hmm. conversely to the downside as well. And that's exactly what I'd be looking for in terms of uh, the NASDAQ being bullish. So that's weekly, which looks to the next months in advance, daily, um, which looks to the, ne uh, the next weeks in advance. And it's the same on the hourly too, but just for, you know, the sake of showing it. And that's the weekly uh, point, and, point and figure. And if you go back to the daily on the settings, I've got it on. 
if I make it more granular and more specific, um, yeah, I've got targets to 148, depending on what the settings are. So that's a good way of uh, rounding out your fundamental, um, mm -hmm. you know, thesis. If you're looking at the market itself, um, in terms of futures and also the ETFs, I'd encourage anyone to start to have a bit of a look at what they call the market profile chart. This mm -hmm. gives an indication. Um, you can see these little histograms, which represent one day. Um, these show the amount of time that the price spent on each day. Right. So, so mm -hmm. your candlesticks are good because they show what happened, up, down, open, close, etc. But they don't right. show how where the price was throughout the period. So these do. <clears throat> this is showing every every letter corresponds to a twenty five. Um, Oops, sorry, 25 uh, cent change, and basically it tracks it each day over time. These are beneficial. Mm -hmm. let, me, let me tell you why. The research shows that the market moves from high usage to low usage, okay? And that's just a cyclical pattern, obviously, that we see with the market. Now, if you're noticing high usage, a pocket of high usage, and you can also overlap these if you wanted to to see the histogram, then you might put that into context and say, well, my next estimation is that at some point the market has to go to where it's being used in less, low usage. So for context, we had high usage here, and this is going all the way back to the start of May, okay? And then eventually it filled the pocket of high usage. And then obviously because we've spent some time in this, uh, this price zone, this is where the high usage is. The mm -hmm. next expectation is it to fill that gap of low usage. Right. And that's an efficiency thing. You've got different market participants. You've got traders who are there for price action and you've got long-term investors who are happy to pay, you know, a little bit extra above the market price or a little bit, you know, below the market price, for example, if they're selling. Um, because they've got a long-term view in mind. But these, if you're following the indices, I would absolutely recommend to have a bit of a look at the market profile charts. Um, they are absolutely fantastic. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've, I've got them on the daily here, but you can set them up all the way, um, you know, to, to, the, to the quarter, which I'll do now for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I'll just uh, I'll do the month, actually. And it'll, yeah, so this is all the trading over the past three months. And you can see the various histograms that are getting formed, right? Mm -hmm. And you'd imagine overlapping these with each other, you'd, you'd see where the peaks and the troughs are. And obviously, the, if you're looking at this histogram here, this was last month, the pocket of low usage looks in here. Yep, so it looked to round out that histogram. And for context, that's exactly where it's opened, is in that range there. Looking to fill that histogram there. Right. What, what chart are we looking at now? This is the market profile of the uh -huh. NAS. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So there you are. And that's that's a that. charts point and figure and 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 um and uh market profile. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and so what software yep, are you using here? So this is up data. I'm just gonna turn my screen just so yep. I can get the full thing in view. This is my screen that I see every day, mm -hmm. or one of them anyway. Um and this is UpData. I would encourage everyone to have a serious look at UpData. If you're a serious investor, 
um, and even if you're not that serious an investor, this charting service is has every single instrument, asset class, um, and security that you can think of, and across all data feeds too. So you can connect it to your brokerage and stuff, and that's up data. I don't have any affiliation with them. I just use the chart, and I've I'm, I'm a big fan. Okay, great. Well, it's very interesting. You know, point of figure charts, something that I've looked at a little bit before. I'll, I'll definitely look at it again. It is interesting how yeah. you say it is actually very kind of old school in the way it's literally just yeah. like doing the, yeah. the zeros and the yeah. x's. It's that's right, and it's objective too. And the math, the maths that goes into it gives you very objective uh, price um, price objectives. And the, the two books I'd recommend on that for point and figure charts uh, is is just called Point and Figure Charts by Jeremy Duplessis. Um, very, he's kind of like the authority on that. And for our cloud charts, um, the book of the same name, Cloud Charts, by David mm -hmm. Linton. And both of those gentlemen were instrumental in setting up this software that you just saw as well. So you're getting basically from the horse's mouth if you're going to read those two texts. And there are other texts, but I would recommend those two texts. There you go. Technical analysis, a great great compliment to fundamental, I, I always say so. And yeah. now, before we finish off this conversation, I did want to talk a little bit about the stock we were talking about before, which is uh, Medler Toledo, ticker yes. MTD. And you were yes, talking about this stock. Is this in the snow? I, I'm building the uh, Pragmatic Investor podcast portfolio, getting every guest to... To, to put in a stock hopefully our collective knowledge will will perform well we'll, we'll see how it goes after after a few months so uh, tell us a little bit more about this stock and why why you're bullish on it yeah look you can construct a position in so many different ways right um depending on your investment style on your if you're working professionally what you're mandated to do and not to do um, but realistically, if you're stock picking um, versus, you know, building an index or investing in, in index funds, then you need some sort of embedded source of alpha, okay, mm -hmm. something that's going to see the stock outperform versus the market. Obviously, that's uh, fundamental, rudimentary. Um, that's, the, that's the sort of base level of it. Now, with Metla, the key is that it has that embedded source of alpha, and I'll explain why. First of all, a bit of history on uh, MTD, which is the ticker. Uh, I've been bullish on MTD since early 2019 um, and turned even more so in 2020 during COVID, obviously, with that rally that we enjoyed. Um, but it is a company that manufactures precision instruments um, and sells them globally. It has a number of segments, and it also uh, has a separate, uncorrelated operating segment in food manufacturing. So you can expect things like laboratory instruments, um, lab software, you know, thermal, thermal analysis systems, that sort of thing. Nothing too fancy, but but very uh, profitable, and obviously. Um, a market that's not going to slow down anytime soon. The key thing about Metla is that it allocates absolutely zero cash, no capital to acquisitions or to embarking on a uh, audacious growth journey. Instead, mm -hmm. since the mid 90s, when it first sort of came to fruition on the exchange, 
uh, it has been returning capital to shareholders via buybacks. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at the at rolling average buyback yield, if you take a three-year three rolling average buyback yield, each period, and you roll that forward each period, has constituted an average 7% buyback yield. And it's an interesting concept because there's no dividends on offer, but the companies are allocating at the moment around $2 billion uh, annually per year towards its buyback program. So mm-hmm. I believe and have uh, been extremely bullish on that particular point. And the reason it can sustain this position so well is in due to its the economic characteristics of the business. And we talked a bit earlier about economic earnings and cost the, the return above the cost of capital and what have you. That's important because a company can grow. Well, financial theory tells us anyway, a company can grow as a product of its return on invested capital mm-hmm. and its the amount it reinvests. So ideally the company has lots of opportunities to reinvest and can re- and can invest at really high rates of return. That's the holy grail. If it can do that, it will sustainably grow and whilst growing, it can throw off lots of cash to the shareholders. In fact, if the benefit of having a company where the return on invested capital beats some sort of hurdle rate is that the company can focus on growing without jeopardizing any of the earnings or cash it distributes to its shareholders via earnings growth, dividends, or buybacks, and vice versa. So it can actually in, uh, allocate more capital to its buybacks without jeopardizing its growth rate. And so here you have a company that over the last uh, five or so years has invested uh, at 8% of its earnings at the end of the year, has put 8% of that back in and returned 10% on an incremental basis. So here you have a firm that's investing at 8% and getting 10% on its own profits and that differential is instrumental in funding the buybacks because it's just additional profit the firm is generating from its own capital. And instead of, I guess, focusing on, a, on, a, on growth and what have you, it's just returning that back to shareholders at an average 7% buyback yield. And that's very attractive. First of all, you might look at it similar to a dividend yield in that it gives you a circa 7% coverage on the downside, which is nice, especially if you're running an equal weight portfolio where each position is uh, of the same weight and so your risk each position is the same. And the second thing is too, you've got a perpetually undervalued stock because the company is coming onto the market and paying a slight premium to the average weighted price each time it's entering the market and buying back its own stock. And so it's a really good sign for that reason in that Mm -hmm. the stock is hypothetically perpetually undervalued because there'll always be a buyer at the higher threshold. And not only that, the share count decreases over time, which increases the per share metrics that you as an investor achieve. Now, this mm-hmm. is not a cheap company in the sense of absolute right. cheap cheapness. Valuation is quite uh, pricey, mm-hmm. but if you nut it out in your own, so it's, it's, it's trading at around 23 times forward EBITDA, which is pricey. 
but you have to look at things on a in first principles. And we talked a bit about Buffett at the start, who sort of dispels the myth of growth and 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 value stocks in that uh, ideally you'd, you'd you'd want a growth stock at a good value. And so you have to understand what's the value of the stock. And in my estimates, which I've posted in the um, latest research that I've done in January on Metla, is that I believe it's worth up to 78 times earnings with the buyback. And I've just got that in front of me now. And so I I wouldn't pay that, but it gives me scope to say, well, maybe that the multiples that the market's quoted at the moment might be uh, understating it a bit, and especially mm-hmm. if you factor in the buyback, which is set to be by management management's accord around a billion to two billion dollars going forward into perpetuity, then that is kind of like a stream of income and should be considered cash to owners. And in your valuation, um, to me, I'm, I'm sorry, that's just my uh, my battery there. Um, I might have to put on charge now. Yeah, so I'm getting to around 78 times earnings with the buyback, and that's very um, that that's a very attractive investment for me. And I own the stock. If you do own the stock at the moment, uh, I would take solstice in that. But even I'd be happy to buy at the current uh, market valuation, current market cap, for all the reasons that I mentioned, especially locking mm-hmm. in that circa seven percent yield if that continues. And that's my pick. And that just is a way I've demonstrated how we select. Um, you know, the selective opportunities that we look at and the way we look at things other than just pure fundamental, you know, financials and what have you, looking deeper at how the firm uses capital and how efficiently it uses capital, what returns mm-hmm. it can it generate in its own investment. And also these, I guess, more tactical investments um, where the embedded source of alpha is something like what I've described. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, there you have it. Very interesting. Medler Toledo. Uh, ticker MTD. Now, Zach, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on. You've been a great guest. You've given us a lot of very useful information on the medical sector. You've given us a lot of good uh, investment ideas, given us some good names out there, even referenced us some some good books and educational research on that technical analysis. Uh, So, Zach, uh, just thanks a lot for coming on, and I really hope we can do this again sometime. Thank you very much, uh, James. It was an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you for uh, the uh, AI discussions. That was, I'm sure that was <laughs> due to come up, and, uh, and it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. All right. Let's do it again sometime. Thanks, mate. Absolutely. Right. Looking forward to it. Bye-bye, everyone. Once again, everyone, thanks for listening to The Pragmatic Investor. If you aren't already, please go ahead and follow me on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever it is that you're listening to the podcast. And remember that if you'd like more content on investing, I do a lot more on Seeking Alpha. You can find me there, James Ford, The Pragmatic Investor, where I cover crypto, the macro outlook, international stocks, and so much more.